Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're going to sit down with a San Jose assemblyman who's taking on what could prove to be the biggest legislative battle of the year, single-payer health care. That's right. Assemblyman Ash Cholera is here. We are excited to talk to him about that proposal, as well as his life of first in politics, first Indian American to be elected to both the San Jose City Council and state legislature. And Scott, I'm also excited to get some cooking tips from him. He's always whipping up this delicious-looking North Indian cuisine on his Twitter feed with his dad. But first, we should talk about real stuff. I (laughs) I know. I'm hungry now. (laughs) So um, this has been a big week in state government. We saw the governor unveil his budget proposal for the year. Um, But before that, I mean, I think we have to talk about what's on everybody's mind, which is still this COVID surge. And really, you know, as opposed to a couple of years ago when we were talking about hospital beds being, you know, full and schools shutting down, it's kind of a different challenge now, which is like, how do you stay open when so many people are at home either quarantining, isolating? Isolating, sick, seeing if they get sick. It's yeah, just absolutely. A mess. I, you know, I think in some ways this pandemic has really unveiled or underscored or for some people revealed some of the weaknesses in our system. You know, everything from the supply chain to schools to lack of nurses sometimes, or we're on very thin ice. And when we have so many people out, whether they're janitors or teachers or principals, assistants, kids, you know, things just kind of fall apart. And, you know, I think we're all hoping and the, you know, epidemiologists are saying that once we get through January, things are going to start to look better. But in the meantime, you know, these next two, two, three weeks are going to be really tough. And nowhere is that going to be felt more than with schools, yeah. parents and kids. Yeah. And, and teachers. And I think it's like one of those things where everyone feels very frustrated because this we're almost two years into this as the third calendar year of this pandemic. And yet we were still cut, caught sort of unawares by this new variant and the, and the needs, the PPE. I mean, God, we thought we had stopped saying PPE. I know. <laughs> um, I had to think back. What does that mean now? Yes, well, I know it's masks. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, it's, and, and all these questions about it, like N95s now, is that what we have to do? Do we have to get tested? You and I were wondering, do we have to get tested before we come into the studio? 
video here yeah. today. It just raises all these questions again. Even as we get more evidence, Kaiser study came out yesterday showing that this variant is much less lethal. It's much if you're less, vaccinated. If you're vaccinated, if yeah. you're boosted, correct. Um, but I mean, that gives you a lot of assurance right. and a lot of incentive to get the damn shots. But this is a politics show, and so what I'm sort of been watching is like how the governor reacts. And I found it really interesting. I mean, first of all, we should say that the 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 framework, the budget framework, the legislature passed last year really did limit the options of school districts. So I think that there's a financial financial incentive not to try to go back to independent study or distance learning because there really isn't a mechanism to do that and still get paid. But I thought it was fascinating that it is, what, two hour plus long Three, uh, almost. news conference or uh, opera on Treatise. the budget, uh, whatever you want to call it. He it, it didn't come up that much. This question of sort of like, how is the state going to handle this? And when will districts like Hayward Unified that did shut down this week, will they still get their money? Well, um, clearly the governor yeah. and legislators and I think certainly parents want the schools to be open. I think kids have just suffered so much from this distance learning. I've heard that from teachers and from parents. And, you know, it's just uh, I think that's clear. And there's clearly now an economic disincentive to the school districts to close. But we're seeing in other cities like in Chicago, where the mayor is fighting with the union, the teachers union here in California, the governor this week uh, released an executive order making it easier for school districts to uh, hire back retired teachers Mm -hmm. and get part time teachers in more quickly. How many elderly retired teachers Uh, are yeah, Dying and, and I, you know, I saw in Palo Alto, they're actually asking parents to step forward and come in and work the cafeteria lines. Yeah, I mean, we have a call out in San Francisco. Become a sub if you can. And and I mean, the the frustrating thing, I think, for everyone on the ground here is like, again, we're, we're in our third year and teachers at my kid's school are paying out of pocket for their own masks and for kids, you know, and stuff yep. like that. But the budget was far more than just COVID, although there was a bunch of money in there to help boost all the things we're talking about, testing, tracing, um, masks. But I mean, Scott. But the governor kind of framed it around uh, what he said were the most pressing issues for California, inequality, homelessness, COVID-19, climate change, climate change and public safety. Um, I know you've been looking into one of the less fleshed out but still interesting things here, which is this idea that he might be expanding conservatorships. Right. He said uh, that he wants to lean into this idea of conservatorship, which is basically to give local governments the authority We've all seen it in big cities. People who are on the streets, they're unable to take care of themselves or a danger to themselves, maybe to other people, but there's no way to you know, coerce them into care, into treatment, into shelter. And so there was a bill that was passed that the governor signed, uh, but it really hasn't been that big of a tool. And so he wants to uh, lean in, as he says, make it more expansive. He's going to get a lot of pushback. It's a very controversial idea because it conjures up a lot of notions from the past of people being put you know, into these places without against right. their will. Well, you said coerce. I mean, it's coerce, true. And yeah. I mean, it is. With it no is rights an idea. and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's going to be uh, definitely a fight, uh, you know, on on the left, because this is something that you there's a lot of disagreements within the Democratic Party over. Right. Um, and we will be watching. I mean, it's a 284 billion, six, six billion dollar. But, uh, you know, I got to say, he said it's going to be dramatically different with the May revise. And I don't think he meant downward. No. You so know? what we will be watching in that is do you and I and all the other taxpayers get a rebate? Because that could happen. I don't know if we're um, going to qualify. I mean, it may be targeted, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, we'll they, see. they may want to target it to, you know, the, you know, the earned income. income tax credit right. folks, that kind of thing. But we'll see. And they but, might be able to 
spin the numbers so they don't. Although in an election year, is it a bad thing for any any party's governor to send out a People have checks? short memories, though, it's, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's not like Biden's gotten any credit for <laughs> exactly. the stimulus. All right. Before we go to break, um, I do want to just sort of tease to what we're going to talk to our guest about, which is the single-payer health care proposal. This is, as we said, shaping up to be a huge battle in the legislature. Um, and this is not the first time we've seen it come up up there. It came up uh, under Arnold Schwarzenegger. It came up under Jerry Brown. Those two governors were pretty skeptical, to say the least, about this idea of having the governor, the government step in and be the single payer instead of having insurance companies and employers and employees, everybody chipping in. We'll talk with Ash Kalra about it. But it is a, you know, it's a fundamental rethinking of an entire system that affects virtually every single person yeah. in the state. And so you can understand why they're a little skittish about changing it in a yeah. fundamental way. I know. After watching the PG&E bankruptcy, which is you know, one utility, it just strikes you how hard it is to get your arms around restructuring something that big. So we will talk to the Assemblyman about that in just a second. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be joined by Assemblyman Ash Cholera. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today, we are thrilled to have Assemblyman Ash Kalra. He has represented a district that includes San Jose here in the Bay Area since 2017. Assemblyman, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we want to talk about your life and, and how you got here, but we, we got to start with the news of the week, right? Single payer, um, as we mentioned, you know, a little bit of a controversial proposal. Uh, a couple insurance companies may not like it. Uh, <laughs> Chambers of Commerce, yeah, like others. <laughs> uh, before we get into some of the nitty gritty, though, can you just talk about why this issue? Why now? What is your elevator pitch to your colleagues in Sacramento? Well, first of all, just the, the notion that it's controversial or radical, what have you, when so many other countries do it and they look at our system as the one that's radical, because it is. Right. No other country in the world would choose to have the system that we have, uh, because it doesn't make sense. Uh, and the, the reality is that we spend more for healthcare than anyone else in the world, and yet we have the worst outcomes of any wealthy nation in the world, uh, and we have medical bankruptcies that don't even exist in most of the world. The number one reason why families declare bankruptcy is because of medical bills. And that's even after the Affordable Care Act. Uh, even after the Affordable Care Act, a portion of medical bankruptcies have not gone down. So we're literally bankrupting families. People are dying. 
we're letting insurance companies and their adjusters overrule doctors and nurses as to what the best treatment is. And then when they overrule the doctor, the doctor or the insurance agent or whoever says, well, go start a GoFundMe account. Hmm. This is happening in the wealthiest state in the wealthiest nation on earth. Well, and I, think is I think you're on solid ground with a lot of that. And I think it was even President Obama, who, of course, you know, did Obamacare, who said, you know, if we were redesigning our if we were designing our health care system from the start right now, we would do a single payer. But we didn't, you know, instead we linked it to employment and all the rest. And so for you and for California, the, the question is, how do you transition from the system we have, which you described just a moment ago, into one that is fundamentally different in terms of who pays for it and how? It's very hard. That's why it's been tried and failed so many times. But I refuse to stop trying just because it's difficult. I mean, every year that goes by, our current system gets more and more complicated, more and more cemented into a status quo uh, that is unjust and immoral and just nonsensical. And so there's no doubt that it's difficult because we're really trying to create a new payment system. We're not taking away anyone's health care. Quite to the contrary. We're actually adding options. We're adding choice. We're lowering costs, not just for families, but for employers and for the state. Uh, so we all know that every legitimate, credible academic study has shown single-payer health care is not only a better policy, it costs far less. And it's the morally correct thing to do. But how do you do it? I mean, do you imagine this is something that would phase in slowly over time? Or is this something that would sort of, you know, you snap your fingers and suddenly, you know, Blue Shield doesn't exist? Am I still going to Kaiser for my care? Like, how, like because to your point, you are unwinding a huge web of complicated bureaucracy. Well, that's correct. And so no, nothing happens overnight, especially not something of this nature. In fact, the federal Medicare waiver program allows a, a five-year lead-in to any type of innovation program that they accept. And so we're talking about a process. Uh, it's a process that's not easy. There is going to be a transition period. Um, but hospitals like Kaiser and your local you know, community clinic, they'll all still be there. Now, the, the payment will be done differently, be done by the state. This is not a state takeover of the healthcare system. It is a single payers. The state will be the payer into a system that currently exists, except we'll make it far more efficient by cutting out about 20% of the administrative waste, which costs us tens of billions a year, the profit taking and the fraud and the inefficiency. Okay. So what, what ha to Marisa's question, what happens then to these insurance companies? I mean, if, if you're taking out the profit, there's no incentive for Blue Shield or Blue Cross to stick around. I mean, I'm not, not even sure what would happen to Kaiser, their nonprofit technically. Well, Kaiser has three different divisions. Part of it is an insurance company. Part of it is service delivery. There's no reason why, especially given the integrated method that Kaiser operates, actually works really well with AB 1400 and CalCare. Uh, and so we do have, for the first five years, 1% of the budget to go to job transition to help those in the insurance industry transition to other types of employment. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, if we have an unjust, immoral, and extraordinarily costly system, um, I, I don't think that keeping those jobs should be the justification for not changing the system. It's like saying, well, we're, we're for the comet because of the jobs it's going to bring. <laughs> well, what, what about the cost, though? Because and, and then we can talk a little bit more about the politics. But opponents really focus on that. Right. But we're all paying a lot right now. Um, Four hundred billion dollars by one recent estimate was, you know, the total health care expenditures when you count, you know, me, you, insurance companies, employers. 
I know that the details are still being worked out and there's a lot of complicating factors. But I mean, do you have any sense what a family would need to pay into your plan versus what they might be paying now out of pocket or an employer? Well, right now, families are paying an extraordinary amount of money, including employers. Employers pay about 20000 over $20,000 a year for family premiums for employees. That's enormous. It's never been that high. Uh, and individuals are paying as much as 6000 a year. And so people are being, and that's with deductibles, it's with co-pays, it's with uh, premiums, all of that. And 30% of those in California who are uncovered California kind of ACA plans have the bronze plan. Well, the bronze plan means that your deductible is $8,200 for an individual or $16,000 for a family. So not only are you paying premiums, you can't even access your health care until you paid $16,000 out of your pocket. So the, the, I, whenever people ask about how much it's going to cost, you're 100% right. We have to start with how much are we currently paying? How much is it costing us now? Because we pay the heaviest health tax in the world right now. It just happens to be called premiums, out-of-pocket, what have you. Under what I put forward, and, I, and now the, the, the good news is I have AB1400, the policy, ACA11, which is the, the taxes I put forward. If people don't like that, there's plenty of opportunity for us to debate that. That does not have to be done by the end of the month. And looking at that type of system, right now, employers pay about 9.9% of payroll for health care for their employees. Hmm. Under that new system, at least what I put forward, 1.25% payroll tax for employers, 1% for employees who on average pay 2.7% for health care. It's a dramatic cost savings for both employees and employers. Uh, so we want to talk about the politics. We have, uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, so this week, uh, of course, Governor Newsom unveiled his uh, big budget, and he was asked about single payer. Which he campaigned on. Which, yes, <laughs> which he campaigned on. He got a lot of support from the nurses who are big advocates of this. And, you know, he was asked about your bill, and this is part of what he said. So you asked me about something I read in the L.A. Times that was never shared with me. No, I haven't had the privilege or opportunity to learn anything about the details except what was shared in an article that was a very fair, balanced article by John Myers. Um, beyond that, I don't know what they're proposing. I know what we're proposing. The governor is saying he hasn't had the opportunity to read your bill. Um, have you tried mailing it, slipping it under the door? Uh, you know, it, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. This seems to me like he doesn't really want to read the bill right now. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the, the bill the bill's been around for almost a year. Um, I engaged with his staff early on, and, and because the bill wasn't active and going through the policy committees at the time, um, they, they didn't want to engage at the time. But let me set that aside. Single payer has been around for years. This policy is very similar to the one from five years ago that the governor supported. And so I'm more than happy to engage any moment the governor wants to. He has my cell phone. Um, you but know, but, do you, but do, you, do you see his comments? Is that sort of a brushback? Is that an indication to you that he's not that enthused? It's it's not my it's not my concern as to whether the governor's enthused or not. Um, <laughs> we are a co-equal and separate branch of government. I'm putting forward a policy um, that I believe is a just policy. I, I don't work at the pleasure of the governor or serve at the pleasure of the governor. I serve at the pleasure of the people. And so, uh, you know, I, I think there will be a time that uh, there'll be engagement. I, I think part of it is my responsibility um, to get this bill moving. I've started the process. If I can get it through the assembly, I, I, I'm hopeful that that will be enough of motion on the bill 
to then get some engagement and, and, and have all of us come to the table. It's a long also, road till the end of the legislative session, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a long road. And look, I'm, I'm trying to keep, say the, keep the, stay on the high road here. Yeah, I'm totally. very appreciative of what the governor did this week. I support it 100%. Talking about expanding, yeah, expanding healthcare in the budget. To yeah. Yeah. Expanding access to healthcare is a beautiful thing. Everyone should have access. I believe we should go a step further and everyone should have universal healthcare and not just access. Because as I just mentioned, with health insurance companies, um, with ACA, with Medi-Cal, Medi-Cal is basically a, a second tier only because we don't reimburse at the same rates as other providers and therefore not enough doctors take Medi-Cal. Right. And so it's not a bad thing that we're expanding. I fully support it. I've always supported expanding Medi-Cal to everyone. Two things can be true. You can support <laughs> current moves that are happening and still support single payer. And I would like the governor to know that, look, I fully support 100% everything he's doing. I also believe that we need to push for single payer. All right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We're talking to Assemblyman Ash Cholera. And we want to talk a little bit about how you got to this point in 2022, pushing single-payer health care. <laughs> so we know that you were born in Canada to Indian immigrants, and I think you lived there until about age six. Do you remember your Toronto roots? Is that a, a, a formidable part of your life? So I lived in Toronto from ages when I, from when I was born. In fact, when I was born, we lived in affordable housing in um, downtown Toronto. And um, when I was about three, after my father um, got a job about three and a half hours away from Toronto in a tiny town called Deep River, population 4,200. I actually visited it for the first time in 43 years this past October. Wow. And I do remember, like it brought back memories. You know, then I was four, five, six years old. So that was definitely early childhood memories started coming back to me. And I do remember Toronto even from those years because we used to go back to Toronto on the weekends sometimes and stay with family friends we had met during our early years in Canada. And so, yeah, it absolutely brings back memories. And it, it, it speaks to how much my parents have sacrificed, how much we've been given. And that my role in public service is boiled down to two words, to reduce suffering. And I, I, that's my goal because I've been given so much and so many have sacrificed. So many of my, of my family members have sacrificed for me. And so um, it definitely reinvigorated my call for service, my well, call, my call to service. Tell us a little bit more about your family because I've seen, we've seen uh, pictures and YouTube videos of you and your dad who lives with you uh, in San Jose. Tell us a little bit about him, what you've learned from him. And, you know, do you have siblings? There's not a lot about yeah. you out there in terms of your family. Good. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Good. I'm keep it that way. <laughs> I, like keep, I, I like to keep it that way. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, look, my, my family's from India. My father was actually born in 1944 and, and his family had to flee during the partition um, and they lost everything. It was the biggest mass movement of human beings in the history of mankind over, you know, basically over, over days, uh, over a million people died. And they ended up basically as refugees in their own country. Um, he grew up in a little town with no electricity. And I mention all that because for him to be able to live through that experience um, as a family that didn't have means and ended up getting his PhD in aeronautics from the University of Toronto. He's a rocket scientist, right? And came with my mom, uh, my brother was born, was an infant. And, you know, my mom growing up in Bangalore, India, in the South, this really warm, beautiful climate ends up in Canada. And when they first moved to Canada, they didn't have a place to live because they, my dad got a scholarship, but it didn't cover housing. Oh, and so they were literally, literally, I can't imagine how hard it was for my mom, like 
moving, like living in people's living rooms or guest rooms. Some professor would let them live for a week or two and then they'd go somewhere else. They had to do that for several months until they finally had their name get up on the list for an apartment building that was affordable housing. And you know that's, how, that's my foundation. I, and I remember going back to India when I was a child to visit uh, when I was about eight years old and I, and I saw little kids that looked just like me coming out to me, begging me for money. And that's when I had a realization at that young age, I couldn't obviously articulate it at that age, but I've never been the same since. I think I, I recognized that there was something that was not just feeling lucky, but feeling obligated to do something with my life, to earn what I was given. And I would assume then that's probably why you pursued law school. Um, you were a public defender before you turned to elected politics. Why, why that role? And, and what did you learn that you're still carrying with you? Well, that, being a public defender is still to this day the best job I've ever had. I worked there for 11 years. I chose that role. Uh, I mean, you got to think about the timing. Graduate law school in 96. I started in public defender's office in 97. <laughs> those, uh, are, those are the height of the tough on crime era. Right. Three strikes law, war on drugs. Uh, and I saw poor pe- people um, just being churned in, in and out of the criminal justice system. We were the California was the incarceration capital of the world. I'd go into the neighborhoods where my clients lived and meet with their families and um, just saw dilapidated communities, didn't have access to quality jobs or infrastructure, um, hospitals and healthcare. And my, my experience as a public defender absolutely stays with me to this day. It informs much of what I do to this day, uh, including having to deal with the criminal justice system uh, where everything was stacked against you as a public defender, especially back then. We're trying to unwind some of that the last few years, but it taught me a lot about how to keep fighting even when the odds are against you and even when you lose to get back up and keep fighting. Uh, It taught me the value of the Constitution and representing the Constitution and fighting for it and that everyone is valuable. Everyone has value and to not judge people because they're different or judge people because they did something that maybe you wouldn't have done. Uh, And so all that sticks with me to this day. Yeah, this is maybe a bigger question than we have time for. But, you know, you were a public defender. You're big on criminal justice reform. We're in this moment now where people are worried about crime. And as a former public defender, as somebody who supports changes to things like three strikes, I assume you're against the death penalty and, you know, you probably were for props 47 and 57. What do you make of this moment we're in and the fear that people have and about public safety? And even the governor uh, spoke to it in his budget. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I think the media plays a huge role in it. That, um, you know, the, the reality is that crime trends have not gone up dramatically. They've gone down over the last 10 years, including whatever recent spikes there might there might be. Uh, and this, what I see, I see this as a reaction to millions taking to the streets in the Black Lives Matter movement. And that it's a pushback. Uh, and we have to be very careful about not going backwards, especially as a state. Uh, there's a lot of politicians that love to jump uh, on crime as a way to boost themselves. It's a very easy thing to do. It's a much harder thing to do to get to the root causes and work on the root causes. I'm focused on the root causes because we know that the top on crime criminal justice era uh, has been an abject failure. The war on drugs is a failure. And they were all orchestrated in order to lock up poor people. And we know that now looking at the last few decades, that has been the result. And so I really hope that we continue on a path of really looking at, the, at what we can do systemically um, and not respond to everything with a gun and a badge, 
or with locking people up because that does not reduce crime. All that does is it destroys neighborhoods and communities and generations of typically young men stripped away from their communities. All right. I want to switch gears a little bit. Another big news today was that the uh, state regulators released this report showing that behested payments where a lawmaker or somebody asked businesses to donate money to a cause jumped from like 20 million to 237 million overnight. Up 10 times. Your only behested payment was to Veggie Fest. Which yeah. <laughs> five thousand bucks for veggie a fest. plant-based. <laughs> Others got millions for for COVID response. No, but I, this just brings us to what we mentioned at the top, which is you're really known on Twitter for like your cooking with your dad. Talk a little bit. You're a vegan, I believe. Like, talk about yeah. what's your favorite uh, Indian cuisine to cook, and and yeah. why do you share all that? So um, a couple of things. But yeah, I am the only vegan legislator. Proud of that. I'm also only one of two uh, legislators that is corporate free, and I. Also, uh, like the, <laughs> veggie the fest, yeah. <laughs> um, but being plant based, being vegan, is an important part of who I am. And I and I've always loved social media for sharing, not just politics and what I'm doing on policy, but who I am as a person. I think that sometimes people forget we're human beings. We have you know our, our lives, and I, I believe strongly uh, in being vegan, and uh, and why I'm vegan, and to protect the planet for my health and for the animals. And I think that those are positive messages is that if I can put on veggie fest festivals on the large scale or on a small scale show folks that I'm that, you know I, as busy as I am as a legislator even I have time to cook now and then to cook healthy food to cook vegan food um, and yeah I mean being Indian it may be a little bit easier because our comfort foods are vegetarian um, but I love cooking Indian food I love cooking for my dad and for myself and um, you know I, I think uh, especially given our current you know when we talk about the healthcare industry, uh, for example, it's connected to the food industry. If you look over the decades and how polluted our food industry has gotten, how connected that is to disease. And I always oftentimes say our healthcare industry, instead of a healthcare system, we have more of a disease management system and that everything feeds into it. Our food system and, you know, marketing of fast food and the, the uh, kind of our throwaway society, yeah. it all connects together. And I try to show that through my social media. All right. Well, now maybe next time we'll come down to your house and we can cook something together. Yeah. <laughs> That's Assemblyman Ash Cholera. Thank you so much for your time Thanks today. Thanks so much. Yeah. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Your engineer is Katie McMurray, and I'm Scott Schaefer. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me at M Lagos. Have a good week. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. 
Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.